You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. S.T. Joshi is an award-winning literary critic who specializes in H.P. Lovecraft and weird and fantastic fiction. He's the author of H.P. Lovecraft, A Life, and has written works on crime novels John Dixon Carr, Lord Dunsany, Algernon Blackwood, and M.R. James, and has edited collections of their works. He's the general editor of Dover Horror Classics, and he's now collecting and editing the works of H.L. Mencken. Thank you for joining me, S.T. Sure, great to be here. You know, you got a really early start in the highfalutin literary criticism game. Tell us about that. How did that happen? Well, uh, I started in the study of H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, Lovecraft is a writer that you generally latch onto uh, when you're a teenager, and I did, and he became my whole world when I was uh, 15, 16, 17. But even at that time, when I was still in high school, I was interested not merely in reading him, but in studying him. And as I surveyed the territory of what had been written about Lovecraft, I discovered very little, really, had been written about Lovecraft of any substance. And also that Lovecraft was held in low esteem in the general literary and especially the, the academic community. Uh, and so in my, uh, in my uh, you know, uh, uh, cocksure arrogance at the age of 17, I said, well, let me see if I can do something about that. Uh, and even then, I said, I'm going to compile an anthology of Lovecraft criticism to show the academic community, not the fan community, but the academic community that Lovecraft was an important or an interesting writer. And so I started assembling this volume in high school, uh, I went to Brown University, not only because it is a great Ivy League institution, but because H.P. Lovecraft's papers were there. Thousands thousands of papers and books and magazines and everything you really need to know to study Lovecraft. So I continued compiling this anthology, continued learning about Lovecraft, and I bombarded 33 different academic publishers for this book. A couple of them looked at it, said, well, it's not quite right for us. Uh, finally, Ohio University Press, uh, not, a, not a big academic publisher, but a, a legitimate academic publisher, said, yes, we, we think we want to publish this book. Uh, the book came out in 1980 and did well for them both in terms of sales. It sold several thousand copies, which for an academic publisher is pretty good, and garnered very nice reviews, generally speaking, from the academic and general literary communities. And so I, I took off from there. You know, what you just mentioned, that it sold well, uh, resonates with something that just happened with uh, the uh, Library of America. Their uh, edition of Lovecraft was one of their best sellers ever, wasn't it? That was an incredible phenomenon. Now, we're, we've now moved ahead to 2005, mm-hmm. where as a result of my work and the work of many of my mm-hmm. colleagues, uh, Lovecraft really had attained uh, a considerable prominence. Lovecraft occupies a very interesting place in in culture right now. Yeah, now let's take us back. I want to go chronologically how, how you almost single-handedly turned Lovecraft from a, some, the uh, object of the adoration of 13-year-old boys who picked up ratty paperbacks at the local spin rack in the liquor store to a serious academic 
uh, writer who's highly regarded now as an American writer. It, it is an interesting uh, story. In fact, I want to write the history of Lovecraft criticism, which is an interesting tale in itself. Um, what happened is that I was really in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. I was coming on as a teenager at the very time when a number of other really sharp people, uh, I have to mention people like Dirk Mozig, uh, Donald Burleson, and a couple of others at that time in the mid-70s, were also, like me, convinced that Lovecraft was a genuinely I wouldn't say great writer. He's not up there with Dante or Milton, but he is an important. Uh, we believe we believed he was an important American writer uh, who who ought to to uh, you know be established in the canon. Uh, and our work, uh, as I say, was directed toward the academic community. Now the strange thing is that very few of us were professors. Uh, Mozig was in fact a professor, but he was a professor of psychology, not mm -hmm. English. Donald Burleson was a professor but a professor of mathematics. <laughs> uh, so we were essentially academic outsiders. I was never a professor. Uh, I did my best work as an undergraduate and then a graduate student and then uh, as an independent scholar. Uh, but we bombarded the university press publishers. And, and you know whether by luck or by our skill, we managed to get books published by academic publishers in, in the 1980s. And you know because we were convinced that to get Lovecraft on the map, literarily, you had to convince the professors. You had to convince academia that Lovecraft was important because they are really the ones who determine canonicity in this country right now. Uh, and sure enough, over the course of time, uh, that happened. Uh, by 1990, Donald Burleson published a book uh, on Lovecraft and uh, the review by Academic American Literature, which is the leading academic publisher, or academic journal for English studies. Uh, the review basically started out saying, it's getting to the point that those who dismiss Lovecraft will have to go on the defensive. <laughs> that single remark said, yes, we're doing something right here. It, and it also, conveniently enough, 1990 was uh, the year of Lovecraft's centennial, mm -hmm. the centennial of his birth. And we, through an incredible amount of effort, staged a conference at Brown University, uh, a centennial conference on Lovecraft, bringing in scholars uh, and, and students from around the world. Uh, Lovecraft actually was and is much more highly regarded in Europe uh, and Asia even, uh, than he is or was in the United States. So there were a number of leading foreign scholars that we brought in, uh, and we had an incredibly lively session at the Centennial Conference, and I believe we gained some publicity that way also. Um, and so, the, 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 you know, the, the ball just kept on rolling from there. Uh, the next step was to get Get, I'm sorry, the next step was to get Lovecraft's own work published in a more, uh, shall we say, respectable or academically uh, viable format. And I did that uh, with my Penguin editions mm -hmm. of Lovecraft, late 90s, early, early 2000s. And the funny thing is, Penguin came to me. I didn't approach them. They said, we think, now, I'm sure Penguin said, uh, uh, didn't, didn't simply sit around saying, oh, yes, we believe Lovecraft is canonical, therefore he should be in Penguin Classics. I'm sure they also said, Lovecraft is a hugely popular writer, and we want to cash in a bit on Lovecraft. But nevertheless, they let me edit three Penguin editions of Lovecraft, and I think that paved the way to the Library of America volume of 2005. Now, but it wasn't just Lovecraft that needed to be admitted into the canonical uh, 
annals of American literature. It was the fantasy genre in general because mm -hmm. it had always been dismissed. Talk, and you um, didn't just specialize in Lovecraft. You also wrote The Weird Tale, which looked at Arthur Mock and Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, Lord Dunsany, Ambrose Bierce. Uh, talk about the transformation of the perception of fantasy from a marginal form of literature to an actual and very respected form of literature where you were at the center of this. Uh, there are a number of threads here. I think, first of all, that science fiction had attained academic respectability earlier mm -hmm. uh, than horror or fantasy. And so, in a sense, we in the horror field sort of uh, rode on the backs uh, of the science fiction field. Uh, a publisher like Kent State University Press uh, was devoted to publishing science fiction criticism. Uh, they, For a long time, they published the academic journal Extrapolation, um, which was basically a science fiction journal, but we managed to get some articles on Lovecraft and other fantasy writers in there. Um, uh, and so that, that helped. Um, I think the immense popularity of J.R.R. Tolkien was, was enormously helpful because uh, the, the mere extent of his popularity uh, forced academics and, and the general literary public to say, hmm, what's going on here? Maybe there is something here that we need to look into. Uh, in terms of my perspective, um, I my study of Lovecraft expanded to both the study of his influences, that is to say the writers that influenced him, like Lord Dunsany, Arthur Mackin, Blackwood, uh, and then the writers that were influenced by Lovecraft, uh, people like Ramsey Campbell. I've written a book about him, and I, I, I'm convinced that Campbell, uh, a British writer, is one of the great writers uh, of the horror fantasy field. Uh, I would certainly agree. He is remarkable. Uh, I, I mean, he achieves psychological insights using the fantasy tropes that I don't think anybody could have or ever will since achieve. His body of work, and he started very young as a writer, mm -hmm. uh, so he's been writing for 30 or 40 years. His body of work is incredibly impressive. Uh, I, I have no doubt that he will be, if he isn't already, uh, a canonical author. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the things that, that interests me uh, about your perceptions of writers is that you're very interested in their worldview. So talk about what a world, an author's worldview is so far as you're concerned. Well, my, my take on horror and fantasy, uh, I don't know much about science fiction, but certainly horror and fantasy, I see as inherently philosophical modes of writing. That's because these uh, types of works directly address metaphysical issues uh, uh, on a very large and, and, and global scale. The introduction of the supernatural in a work of literature suggests that there is something wrong with our conception of the universe. Let us say that uh, someone writes about a vampire. If they do so intelligently, and, and a lot of it is not done intelligently, but let, let us say a good vampire story will suggest a, va a vampire is a physical impossibility, and yet he or she exists. What does that mean for our understanding of the universe? Lovecraft was a great theoretician of the supernatural. Uh, Lovecraft said that the crux of a weird tale was something which could not possibly happen. And yet, in the story, it is depicted as happening. 
And so that creates a tremendous metaphysical conflict. We are witnessing something that should not be, and, and yet it is. Uh, I, my take on it is that uh, the best writers in this field have a very decided philosophy of life, which can be found through their essays and their letters and other writings. Uh, and they are expressing that view to, to come up with some kind of uh, conception of, of what they believe the universe to be. It is not always easy to, to ascertain that. It's not straightforward. Lovecraft, for example, was an atheist, and yet his works are full of what he calls gods. Uh, but it becomes very obvious that these gods are really uh, immense entities from outer space uh, that seem godlike only to us because we are so tiny and insignificant in comparison to them. So in that sense, his fiction is not a repudiation of his atheism, but in fact a confirmation of it. Now, talk about how the author's worldviews, um, especially in the, the literature of the fantastic, influences their fiction because it really, there's, I, I think, a, a Rubicon that's crossed where the only way, thing that you can write is a, a, the only way you can write about the world because of the way you see it is to use the literature of the fantastic, those tropes, particularly fantasy and horror. Yeah, I think what fantasy and horror allow you to do as a writer is to refashion the universe in accordance with your own view of it. And the best writers do exactly that. Lord Dunsany is a fascinating writer, much undervalued, this great Anglo-Irish writer from the turn of the 20th century. He created an entire imaginary realm, called, which he called Pegana, I believe that's how he pronounced it, uh, in which gods and demigods existed uh, and, the, and worshippers existed uh, to, to, to pay homage to them. Uh, it was as if he created his own theogony. Now again, that's not to be taken literally. I believe he meant that symbolically to express a number of his uh, philosophical concerns. Uh, chiefly, uh, Dunsany was, was uh, a despiser of modern industrial civilization. He wished to go back to a past, uh, a, a, a sort of agricultural past uh, uh, that, 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 that reflected a continuity of life from, from ancient times to the present day. Uh, and so a lot of his writing uh, suggests that we have gone off on the wrong track, and he used fantasy to explore how that happens. It's a very complex uh, but fascinating phenomenon, and you can perceive that as a reader even if you don't understand the full uh, details of his worldview. It comes out sort of subliminally as you read these stories. That's one of the things that really interests me about these stories is the uh, equation and transmutation from the author to their creation then to the reader. The author really doesn't really necessarily have any idea who his readers are or who they're going to be. I mean, many of these writers toiled in complete obscurity and had no thought that here a hundred years later we'd be reading their stuff and talking about it seriously. Yeah, I mean, some authors like Arthur Mackin tend to be a little more uh, 
preachy mm-hmm. than others. Even Algernon Blackwood, I, I have great respect for Blackwood. He wrote some of the finest horror tales uh, in the English language. In fact, Lovecraft is convinced that uh, his story, The Willows, is the finest horror tale ever written. I'm a fan of The Wendigo. The I, Wendigo is also another spectacular tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blackwood had a fine feeling both for the unearthly, uh, the uncanny, and for uh, physical topography. Uh, the Wendigo is set in the wilds of the Canadian uh, backwoods, and he really evokes that that uh, atmosphere very well. He he was there. He was a mm-hmm. great. He was also a great devotee of nature, uh, and he felt that again that that industrialism was a was a bane uh, to civilization. Uh, and, and, and in some senses, the Wendigo is, is both a reflection, the entity, the Wendigo, which is a, a, an old uh, a, a Canadian myth, uh, Indian myth, uh, uh, reflects both his uh, fascination with and terror of the natural world. Uh, Mackin, who was Anglo-Catholic, tended to be a little heavy-handed in, in trying to basically convert his readers to Anglo-Catholicism uh, uh, by way of the horror tale. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it's clear that these writers were, were you know, expressing their deepest uh, uh, philosophical uh, uh, sensations and, and beliefs through their writing. Um, in some senses, that, that kind of... Uh, engagement has uh, tailed off a bit with more modern writing, and I think it's that happened because horror and fantasy became more distinctly, became more genreified, as it were. Certain tropes, certain uh, uh, techniques became standardized, and 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 nowadays you have people just just writing about vampires without thinking of the metaphysical overtones of what it means. For there to be a vampire, it's just it's just used as a as a way of uh, you know uh, uh, sending a shiver up the reader's spine. Uh, I remember one critic saying, "To scare is a slim purpose in literature," uh, and I think that that was uttered by a poet named Winfield Townley Scott. And I think he's right. Uh, if you only want to scare, you really haven't accomplished anything in literature. There has to be some some depth of feeling behind that. Some some uh, ability or or desire to convey something more profound than merely fear. Now, um, here you are in working on you know your critical studies. Talk about uh, creating uh, these magazines that you created out of whole cloth. I mean, you created a genre of magazine, uh, Lovecraft studies and studies in weird fiction. This is a. I mean, this is like the founding of, of you know some serious literary journals. Talk about that. Well, again, from a very early age or early period in my career, I felt that we needed to promote the criticism of horror and fantasy, and there simply weren't the venues out there. These journals that I've created, I I refer to as scholarly journals, but not academic journals, by which I simply mean that they are not uh, funded or supported by a university. Uh, There was a time when uh, Lovecraft studies uh, which I founded as an undergraduate at Brown University, uh, Brown was for a time thinking of lending some kind of uh, you know, the imprimatur uh, to Lovecraft studies, but in the end we, we couldn't really work out how that would be done, and I think that was probably for the better, because the moment that a university steps in, you're going to have, uh, you know, an academic editorial board, and it's, the, the procedures will get very cumbersome. Uh, 
uh, quite frankly, I wanted to be the sole editor. <laughs> I didn't want my judgment questioned, no offense. Uh, I think my judgment's pretty good. Um, anyway, the point is, so as an undergraduate in 1979, I established Lovecraft Studies as a biannual journal, and we continued on for 20, 25 years, and in all humility, I think that made an enormous difference uh, in the in the academic recognition of Lovecraft. Even though that journal was not an academic journal, nevertheless, uh, a few years later, I got the Modern Language Association to index it in their uh, annual bibliography. And so every academic consults that bibliography, and then and, and when they see that every year there are, there are you know a dozen, two dozen articles on Lovecraft, even though all of them are from Lovecraft studies, they'll say, hmm, something's going on here. There's a, there's there's interest in Lovecraft, uh, and and the MLA is taking notice of it. Uh, and I did the same thing with Studies in Weird Fiction, which I founded in, in 1986, uh, for the promotion of these other writers, both uh, both before and after Lovecraft. Um, uh, my publisher at that time, Necronomicon Press, ran into some financial and other difficulties in the late 90s, uh, and I shifted my work to a newer press, uh, Hippocampus Press, who's mm -hmm. uh, taken over these journals, although we, we've now... Uh, Call them something else. Uh, there's now uh, we publish now a Lovecraft annual, uh, and we uh, we're about to publish uh, beginning next year a weird fiction annual that will again take up the slack. Uh, there are still relatively few venues for the criticism of horror and fantasy literature, uh, and even though these journals again will not have academic backing, nevertheless I think they will they will be uh, brought to the attention of the academic community. Um, let's talk about this Library of America, both the Lovecraft and the, the newest one, uh, Tales of the Fantastic. Um, this is the completion of the journey, of the acceptance of something that's been around for a long time. And uh, one of the things that Peter Straub said and mentioned, and this is really true, is that it was only when the pulps came to an, into existence that the weird fiction was separated off and put into its own little ghetto. So talk about that journey from being just part of what, you know, everybody would write a ghost story to all of a sudden ghost stories. And now back into everybody can write a ghost story. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, you know, the pulp magazines really started around the, the teens, the 20s of the, of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, Weird Tales uh, was established in 1923, and, and Lovecraft published most of his work there. I'm still wrestling with the, sort of the cause and effect here. Did the establishment of the pulps force or, or s encourage the mainstream magazines not to publish uh, weird writing, or did they stop publishing weird writing and therefore the pulps uh, came to be? I, I haven't answered that question, but whatever it is, that, that is what happened. Uh, Lovecraft, frankly, would have preferred not to publish in these pulp magazines because he recognized that a substantial amount of the, of the literature in there or the writing in there really was pretty, uh, on a pretty low level. Uh, it, much of the writing in these pulp magazines was done by, quite frankly, by hacks. Uh, who targeted these various magazines uh, and studied their their wants and and wrote formula stories that really don't amount to very much. Um, the few genuine writers uh, in these magazines did have or have come to the surface, uh, uh, you know, have have risen to the top like cream from milk. Uh, people like Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and and a very few others. Uh, Ray Bradbury got into the pulps uh, as they were dying in the 40s and, and 50s, and he emerged from the pulps, and now he is, he is a canonical writer, uh, Fritz Leiber also. 
but yes, there was a time in the, especially in the 40s and 50s, uh, when the general literary community and, and particularly the academic community says, no, it is impossible for there to be good writing in the pulp magazines. It just became a blanket prejudice. Uh, and, 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 and not just in the pulp magazines, but in popular, popular in, magazines in, in general. In yeah. literature, the fantastic itself was excluded by virtue of including elements of the fantastic, unless it was any literature of the fantastic, I think that came after the pulps, because we still would allow Frankenstein to be in there, and we'd still allow, I'm not sure if we'd allow H.G. Wells or Jules Verne or not, but we'd certainly let Frankenstein and some of the earlier stuff there. Yeah, I think what happened was that uh, as a result of the modernist movement of the 1920s, people like uh, Joyce and Eliot and, and uh, Ezra Pound and people like that, and especially with with the the the, the, the development of, of the social realist novel with Sinclair Lewis and Willa Cather and Edith Wharton, mimetic realism became the gold standard mm -hmm. of literature, and critics believed that no other type of writing could possibly. Uh, aspire to literary status. As I say, the, the, the least uh, inclusion of fantasy or horror uh, condemned a work of literature to, to some sort of uh, secondary level. Uh, uh, the dominance of writers like uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, James D. Farrell, uh, uh, Sherwood Anderson, with their very spare uh, prose style, also condemned writers like Lovecraft and even Poe, uh, who wrote in a much more lush and, and somewhat flamboyant uh, prose medium. Uh, and that those prejudices took an enormously long time to, to, to overcome. I think, again, that uh, in the course of the 1960s, and again, in some ways, through the field of science fiction, uh, those prejudices finally started to come down. Uh, it was also at that time when some uh, mainstream writers uh, started using elements of fantasy and horror. I think Thomas Pynchon uh, mm -hmm. was an important figure. Nobody could possibly deny that he was a very serious, very profound writer, and yet uh, there's clearly a lot of weird stuff going on in his <laughs> books. In fact, one academic critic uh, from the 80s con contended that uh, his uh, novel, The Crying of Lot 49, was directly influenced by Lovecraft. Uh, I don't know about that, but he, he made an interesting argument to that effect. Uh, people like Gore Vidal, uh, uh, Myra Breckenridge is a pure fantasy, I mean a pure fantasy, mm -hmm. uh, and, and a hilariously d delightful piece of work. And again, Vidal, a uh, very serious writer, nobody could possibly deny that he was uh, somehow uh, you know, uh, beneath the pale. Um, and so the, these prejudices finally started to break down. It, it took a long time, and still we, we're still not there yet. Uh, but I think that, uh, that 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 appearance of Lovecraft in the Library of America really was a was a watershed. I, I remember one of my colleagues uh, who got that volume says, "Yes, I can die in peace now." <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that you're working on some a, a lot of other stuff now. You're kind of you're you're moving on, and you. One of the things that interests me is is this you're working on documents of American prejudice, uh, which is a a collection of American racist writings, and I think that might have come out of some of your work with Lovecraft. It did. Uh, you know, Robert Block, who as a young man corresponded with Lovecraft, in fact, as a teenager corresponded with Lovecraft, later said, Lovecraft was my university, by which he meant that even through correspondence, Lovecraft opened up so many avenues of study uh, and, and interest to him that he would never have found on his own. And in some senses, I feel that Lovecraft was my university too, because I 
in order to understand Lovecraft, I felt I had to understand where he was coming from, both literarily and philosophically and culturally. And of course, I knew that Lovecraft uh, did indeed harbor these racist views. And so I said, why was that? Why was such an intelligent, sensitive individual so crippled by 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 a belief in 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 these in these very odd views. Of course, one has to understand that he came out of a culture where racism was, frankly, not looked upon as anything bad. Uh, I mean, and 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 he was raised in a in a cultural and and social climate in in uh, conservative New England, where it was understood that that white Anglo-Saxons were the top of the the king of the hills, and everybody else uh, was was down there in the valley. Uh, so trying to understand Lovecraft and 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 reading some of the works that he read uh, that that uh, influenced his racist thought got me to thinking boy there's an awful lot of writing on this subject mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. let me trace it throughout the history of American literature and I found you know documents dating all the way back to the 18th perhaps even the 17th century in fact indeed there was something from the 17th century uh, that that uh, and you can go right up to the line uh, to the present day in fact uh, you know this sort of work is still being being written uh, and and the writing is just one phase of, of, a, of a whole um, environment uh, that 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 contributed to uh, uh, to the development of racism and so you know I'm not I'm by no means uh, an expert in this field I'm not a social scientist but the phenomenon so interested me that I, I felt I wanted to compile this book you're also looking at some other authors too uh, the Ambrose Bierce George Sterling and the California romantics uh, uh, Clark Ashton Smith. This is a really interesting collection of writers, isn't it? That that community in California is is really really fascinating, and they were immensely talented. And unfortunately, aside from maybe Bierce, really haven't gotten the attention they deserve. But they had a thriving literary community, fully equivalent to things like the Algonquin uh, Round Table or anything that you could see on the West Coast. Uh, and I think Bierce was the focus of this. Uh, my interest in Bierce, again, stemmed in, indirectly from Lovecraft. Of course, I knew Bierce as a great writer of horror stories. Uh, but as I started to explore him further, I said, you know, his horror work is a relatively small proportion of his to- total writings. He was a great journalist. He wrote mostly for the uh, uh, Hearst papers. In fact, William Randolph Hearst, as a young man, hired Bierce to write for his San Francisco Examiner. Uh, and he Bierce nurtured a number of other writers uh, uh, of his time and later. People like uh, W. C. Morrow and and Emma Frances Dawson and and uh, George Sterling, who I think is a much much undervalued poet. Uh, and then Sterling nurtured Bierce. Sterling was best friends with Jack London. Uh, there were other writers like uh, like Mary Austin. Uh, even Sinclair Lewis uh, was in this little community for a brief period of time. Um, so, as a literary phenomenon, as a cultural phenomenon, uh, it's 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 in, in, incredibly fascinating, and I hope to do more work there. Now, another writer that you're looking at, and this is very interesting to me, is H. L. Mencken. Um, he he's not canonical yet, though. It, that even saying that seems kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> and, and so, talk about. Uh, you know, selecting and editing his works and, and finding out the soul of this man. Yeah, uh, my interest in Mencken, I think, uh, 
testifies to the adage, everything is connected. You know, my whole general focus is in the writers of the period 1880 to, say, 1940. That's, that's where I've done most of my work. Mm-hmm. When I got interested in George Sterling, I got interested in him through my interest in Clark Ashton Smith, who was, of course, a friend of Lovecraft's. So we have to Lovecraft, to Smith, to Sterling. Now, I said, I want to try to put Sterling back on the map. Uh, I'm not sure I can do that through his poetry, which is very old-fashioned and, and not the sort of poetry that, that many people want to read today. So what else can I do to help uh, you know, lift the reputation of George Sterling? Well, I discovered that he had an extensive correspondence with Mencken. Uh, and clearly, uh, Mencken was a more important writer uh, than Sterling. So I said, maybe I can use Mencken to 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 uh, ride on 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 uh, get 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 him riding on on Mencken's back, and and therefore elevate Sterling. So my first project was to edit the joint correspondence of mm-hmm. Mencken and Sterling, and that was published in 2001. But in the process of doing that, I became fascinated with Mencken himself, uh, and so what I undertook was to transcribe the entirety of his published writing. Now, you have to understand that the books that Mencken published, and he published a lot of books, about 50 or so in his lifetime, represent only the smallest fraction of his published writing. He published immense quantities in newspapers and magazines that Mm -hmm. he didn't bother to collect. I have just completed transcribing 12 million words of H.L. Mencken, <laughs> and we're eventually going to, uh, I'm working with Johns Hopkins University Press and, and the Enoch Pratt Free Library of Baltimore uh, to probably publish an el- some sort of electronic edition uh, through, the, through the web, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, that quantity of material could never appear in book form. I, I think it deserves to be in book form, but, you know, financially it just, it just can't work, so we'll probably do some sort of electronic edition. Uh, but Mencken really is, is a compelling, compelling writer. I think... Uh, the literary community um, and the academic community don't really know what to make of Mencken because they're not used to dealing with journalists. Mm -hmm. Journalism tends not to be regarded as legitimate writing because journalism, the word means writing for a day. Uh, You know, you write for a newspaper, it's published, and it's forgotten, generally speaking. Uh, And there have not been very many great journalists uh, in, in literary history, but Mencken is one of them. Beers was another. Uh, and I think that newspaper work really embodies some of the best writing I- in that period that, that, that exists. Uh, I mean, to that degree, I think Mencken is fully the equal of Hemingway or Faulkner or Fitzgerald. In fact, and he was a great uh, uh, proponent uh, or promoter of, those, uh, of these and other writers. Uh, in fact, Mencken really was the leading literary and cultural critic of the 1920s and 30s. I mean, his word was, was the word of God uh, if you wanted to be a writer. And, and so I think from that perspective alone, uh, he is of great importance. You know, it strikes me that just as with H.P. Lovecraft, starting with an individual writer, you transcended to bring an entire genre of writing into the literary canon, which was the fantastic strikes me that you're about to engage in the same activity with uh, Mencken in bringing journalism, which is not at this point equated with literature, into the realm of literature. Well, I'd, I'd like to. Uh, aside from Bierson and Mencken, I'm not all that interested in journalism, but, but the phenomenon really is very interesting. Um, I think my whole perspective is that I tend because I am not an official academic, I am a, what is called an independent scholar, I'm still somewhat an outsider in the general literary and academic community, 
I tend to engage in those fields that other people really haven't covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you you know, there's plenty of work that's been done on Mencken, but mostly from a biographical perspective. I think there needs to be much more critical study of Mencken, and I hope I can do some of that. Uh, and, and, and Mencken was at the focal point of the whole literary world of that period, uh, the general literary community. I mean, he was in touch with people like Theodore Dreiser and, and uh, uh, Willa Cather and, and Fitzgerald and uh, so many other writers of that period. In fact, I would like to compile a kind of uh, selection of letters between Mencken and all these other great writers because I think that would be very illuminating. Uh, to see his his role as a kind of central figure uh, uh, with all these other uh, other writers of that period, I think it'd be interesting just to see a chart that charted the connections between Mencken and everybody else and the California Romantics. I think that just that seeing all those names together and who mm-hmm. wrote to who and who published who and who talked about who right. would in itself be really illuminating. Mm-hmm. Mencken, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Mencken in some, in some ways the bridge there. Uh, he actually n- uh, corresponded briefly with Ambrose Bierce mm-hmm. right at the end of Bierce's life. In fact, he, he has, tells the story of going to a funeral uh, with Bierce and, and Bierce making all these morbid jokes about about the deceased uh, along the way uh, and then you know he, he, he corresponded with Sterling uh, didn't know Jack London very well but but from, from then on he got Sterling uh, connected with uh, Theodore Dreiser I believe uh, and so the, the literary connections are immensely complicated uh, it was a pretty small world there and most everybody knew everybody else uh, and Mencken, you know, uh, with these journals that he edited, the Smart Set and then the American Mercury, uh, really provided a forum for a lot of these writers to to uh, uh, get to the public. You know, it strikes me you're a, a critic who's interested in the worldviews of writers, and I'm wondering how much you think about your own worldview a- as an outsider, an independent scholar who's successfully brought writers into the canon. Talk about your worldview and how it influences your writing and your work. Well, I'll be frank, I'm an atheist. Uh, and I, I wouldn't say I got that from Lovecraft. I knew that Lovecraft is an atheist. Possibly I, I, my, my worldview was influenced to when I read Lovecraft's letters, particularly uh, in which he really argued about atheism very cogently and, and, and uh, uh, Incisively, in fact, I, I shortly uh, uh, in a, in a couple of months, uh, a small press will be issuing a, a book that I assembled of Lovecraft's atheist writings. I think it's called um, "Why I Am Against Religion: <laughs> The Atheist Writings of H.P. Lovecraft" or something like that. Uh, it's, I, I hope it'll be a pretty incendiary volume because it's you know atheism is now a a hot topic these days with mm-hmm. a lot of these best-selling books on the subject. Um, and I have myself compiled and written books about atheism and agnosticism, uh, mostly for Prometheus Books, which is really the leading publisher uh, of this type of work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and in college I did receive some philosophical training. Uh, I started studying the ancient philosophers, that is to say the, the, the Greek and Roman philosophers, uh, people like uh, Democritus and Epicurus, who for all practical purposes were atheists, uh, or, or laid the groundwork for for that that worldview, um, for the most part, I think I I follow Lovecraft, except the racism, of course. Um, I think he had a very cogent view of the world, uh, because I think Lovecraft, 
understood that having a rational view of the universe did not equate with imaginative impoverishment. His literary writing, his stories, express an aesthetic appreciation of the wonders of the universe. Uh, but as a thinker, as a philosopher, uh, he was aware that we have to keep our feet on the ground and, and only go so far as what science uh, tells us is the probable truth. Uh, but science may be the arbiter of truth, but that's not all there is uh, to life. Uh, there is art, there is literature, there is poetry. Uh, and, and, and so Lovecraft combined uh, you know, the, the philosophical and the aesthetic in a way that, that very few others do. Uh, I have always been also attracted to uh, literary satire. Uh, in fact, the writer that I really studied uh, in college uh, in, among the ancient writers was the great satirist Juvenal. Uh, uh, he was a very pungent satirist, so I like, I like satire that sort of uh, uh, provides a little needling. Uh, uh, Jonathan Swift, for example, and, and Bierce. I think Bierce was perhaps the greatest American satirist who ever, ever lived. Uh, there's a lot of satire in Mencken, and I think that attracts me. Uh, among more recent writers, Gore Vidal, uh, I think, is a compelling, compelling writer. Uh, I just did a bibliography of him, and I've gotten in touch with him and may work with him on some, some literary projects later. Um, so, yeah, you can trace the threads of my interest, uh, you know, stemming from Lovecraft, but also stemming from, from uh, my own personal tastes in, in literature and philosophy. Um, I, I think that, um, I will, I will say that I regard three things as one of the three of the great evils in life and society are, I'm sorry to say, religion, racism, and sexism. And I hope I can combat, combat all of these in my work. And you're interested in writing about politics current day politics, aren't you? I wrote one book on politics called The Angry Right. Uh, what the, uh, let me see, what was the subtitle? The Angry Right, Why Conservatives, Conservatives Keep Getting It Wrong. Um, that came out in 2006, and I like to think that it may have had an infinitesimal influence on the elections of 19, 2006. I don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I got some nice letters uh, in in uh, in response to that book. Uh, I'm sure I got some some hostile notices on Amazon.com as well. Uh, but that's that's what it's for. I I, I have to confess I like being a literary polemicist. Uh, some of my book reviews on on literary subjects. Uh, have uh, gotten me into a certain amount of hot water, um, and uh, but I, I I just like uh, uh, you know uh, riling people sometimes just for fun. I don't I don't mean anything by it. Uh, I hope I'm not malicious in my criticism, uh, but. The world of politics really is con of consuming interest. I think that comes more from Mencken. Uh, Mencken, uh, he, aside from knowing literary figures, he knew a lot of political figures and, quite frankly, had justified disdain for a lot of them because, frankly, uh, politics, they say politics is the art of compromise, but it's the, also the art of um, uh, getting what you want uh, you know, in, in, by, by hook or crook. In a sense, my interest in politics is sort of a, uh, a, a, uh, uh, a way of uh, uh, stepping into the real world. I mean, sometimes uh, a literary critic can become kind of cut off uh, from reality. I mean, if you just study books, you sometimes lose touch with what's actually happening 
uh, in the world and in society. Uh, and I never want that to happen because I think, uh, I think a critic gains by understanding what is going on uh, in, in culture, whether his culture at the moment or, or in the past. Uh, and I think that we are in a very interesting time politically and, uh, uh, you know, who knows where we'll end up, but, uh, but uh, I, am, I am an unabashed liberal. Uh, I think the uh, conservative movement uh, has brought very little good and a great deal of evil uh, to our society, and I hope I can combat that also. I've been speaking with S.T. Joshi. He's the author of H.P. Lovecraft, A Life, and the creator of Lovecraft Studies and Studies in Weird Tales. Thank you for joining me, S.T. It's been a great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.